everyone. Welcome to the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast, where mistakes are welcome, nothing is off limits, and growth is inevitable. I am Sharissa Wood. I'm Brittany Steinman. And we are putting our brains together to bring you the tools you need to elevate your hygiene practice, build amazing team culture, and provide patients with the very best care. Our mission is to help empower and equip every hygienist to practice purposeful, profitable hygiene. We look to guide you on your journey towards career fulfillment by providing support, collaboration, and community to our profession. As two of the top producing hygienists in the country, we know firsthand that these things lead to sustainable and fulfilling practice and the happy side effect of high profitability. So let's get to it. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast. Today, we are talking about conservative versus aggressive treatment planning and common misconceptions or misperceptions around those labels. I think that we've all heard providers say, oh, I'm conservative, I'm a conservative dentist, I'm a conservative hygienist, and that person's aggressive because they treatment plan this way. And um, I think that there are a lot of misunderstandings about the definitions of both of those words. And we use them, I think, in my opinion, a little inappropriately. A lot of times when we're talking about uh, treatment planning adequately and appropriately according to the patient's level of disease or health. So we're gonna dive in and talk about these words, uh, the common misconceptions, uh, the reason why it's important to debunk some of the myths surrounding these words and how uh, this will help us to advance as a profession. So my question initially is, is it aggressive to treat early disease with minimally invasive techniques? Or is it aggressive to ignore or downplay early disease because it's slight and wait until it becomes more advanced and requires more invasive and expensive care before we start to address it? Yeah, and I think just like anything else we've talked about in the past, it's, it's kind of where we assign these positive and negative associations with certain words, because I feel like over the years, like when we, you know, use the word conservative, we almost feel like that's more the positive approach. And then aggressive is more of a negative connotation. And I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, as you know, as we kind of go through this conversation, um, I think again, it's, it's a good idea to kind of look through a lens of, the weight of responsibility that we have toward our patients mm -hmm. and really assessing what their needs are and kind of detaching ourselves from the, the positive or negative connotations that can come with this um, and, and just come from a place of I'm going to do what's best for my patient in every single opportunity in every single case. Right. So yeah, I think, I think it's important to have this conversation because yeah, I think we've kind of walked around with those connotations in our head for a long time and it, and it kind of roots us in the fear of, well, I don't want to be this, or I don't want to be that. Um, I think it's just grounding yourself again. And what, who, what do you want to be? What kind of provider do you want to be to your patients and what are you going to provide for them? Yeah. And I, and I think also it's going back to the fact that, you know, health and disease happen on a spectrum. So there is aggressive disease for which an aggressive treatment plan might be the most appropriate. There is early disease for which a more conservative approach may be more appropriate. However, I feel that even sometimes, you know, when we're offering um, early disease solutions, people are labeling these things as aggressive and there's some confusion around labeling, you know, what we perceive to be aggressive or conservative. So in my opinion, it's more conservative to treat early disease with minimally invasive techniques instead of ignoring or downplaying early disease just because it's slight and instead, you know, waiting for it to cause more permanent damage and more costly and invasive intervention. Right. So I think that most of us in dentistry or hygiene would agree with this, but often we go against our own beliefs about treatment options due to some fears. And we, you and I have addressed a lot of the fears that we face, the, the common fears that we have, like that a lot of humans experience and the unique uh, fears that we might have as dental providers or practitioners. So just as a review of what some of these might be and the reasons why we might downplay disease or offer maybe not the most ideal treatment plan to people is, I think that we have some fear of giving people bad news. We fear people being upset for receiving bad news or something that they didn't expect. Um, you know, we fear that the patient or we have lack of resources or it's difficult to prove that the patient has something like early perio disease when it doesn't hurt. 
We might fear upsetting patients or practice owners or bosses. We might fear being disliked, uh, of being accused of selling, of being misunderstood or not having all the answers. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this has happened to me personally. I'm sure you've experienced this too, where you have patients that you've been seeing for a long period of time mm-hmm. and you come in and all of a sudden you're like, Ooh, this doesn't look like it has been looking. And now I'm seeing bleeding and now I'm seeing redness and inflammation. And there is that like hesitancy within, within yourself to, to tell the patient about that, because there's almost like this I don't know, this mentality of, well, I've been taking care of this patient for a long time. Like, how could this happen under my watch? And now I've got to tell them. And I almost feel responsible because, you know, up until now, things have looked good and, you know, we've maintained health and now, now things have, are not looking so great. So like, what do I need to do here? Like this, this almost looks bad on me. So I don't want to share it. And I think it's being able to kind of step out of the box. Like if this is a patient that we see every six months or every four months, or honestly, even every three months, like a lot can change for a patient. Like, yes, we've been taking care of them, but we're not walking through their day-to-day life. We're not, you know, managing what they're eating and what they're drinking and how they're sleeping and what their stress levels are and what's going on with their immune system. Like there's so much that impacts what's going on with them. So we, we cannot take on that responsibility of what's happened between now and that last visit and feel like, well, we're to blame in this case. Right. And, and us taking on all of that responsibility would be like the patient taking on all the responsibility, excuse me, when we know that perio disease is multi multifaceted and it's a multifactorial disease. So when my patient's health status changes, my inclination isn't to say, you're doing something wrong, right? Because sometimes it, you know, it is the case that their home care isn't perfect or consistent or great. And maybe they need to modify some of their habits or their home care techniques. But we know that, you know, stress levels, immune system, uh, genetics, you know, um, comorbidities, like having diabetes, you know, all play a factor and influence perio health. So I can't, and you can't, and none of us can take on all of the weight and bear all of the responsibility for the person's health because they play a role and so do their, their genes and, you know, their, their parents' health and, you know, where they came from. So, you know, getting that healthy detachment and allowing the patient to see that they can be detached and not take all the responsibility themselves either, I think is setting a good example, you know? So whenever there's a transition in a person's health, you know, I, I tell them we take these measurements because things do change, not because they don't change. We do exams once a year with the dentist because things do change. We take radiographs once a year or whatever's appropriate for the patient because things do change, not because they don't change. Right. If, if your health was static, we wouldn't need all the diagnostics. You know, right. if our health was static, why would we go to the doctor for checkups and blood work? Right. Well, and I think what you just said is super important as well, because not only can we let ourselves off the hook, but honestly, we can let the patient off the hook with what yeah. you're saying here. Like there's so much that even though, yes, there are things they control can control. And I'll say, I think post COVID, this is really, really prevalent right now because I've seen so many patients who haven't kind of come out of the house and haven't, you know, they've been working from home. They haven't been doing a lot. Um, you know, their whole lifestyle has changed. And in that, so has their home care routine. They're under more stress. Um, you know, they may not be eating as well or getting as much exercise. Like there's a lot that's going on. I've had a lot of patients come in and tell me like, yeah, I, my home care has just dropped off. Like my whole, I'm out of whack. I'm out of right routine. And so obviously I think I always talk about one of the biggest barriers or one of the biggest things that we can do gifts we can give to our patient when we're talking about their needs is removing that shame and blame Mm -hmm. of saying like, yep, I get it. And that no, there's no condemnation. You know, I get it. We've all kind of, everybody's off and everybody's, you know, kind of routine has changed. And so, you know, we're not going to feel bad about that. We're just going to address what the situation is now and let's figure out how to make it better. Let's get back to routine. Let's establish something new and different. Let's work on this together. This isn't a shame or blame issue. You know, I'm here to do this with you. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah. And staying solution oriented, you know? Yes. Yep. Um, so I often hear providers kind of boast, and I'm sure that you have too, Sharisa, of being quote unquote conservative, you know, and labeling, like we, like we just said, you know, other providers of treatment plans being aggressive. And I think that there's a lot of confusion and mislabeling happening with these words. So people wear these labels like badges of honor, but I want to look for a second at what these definitions really mean, what the definitions of the word conservative and aggressive really are. 
So conservative, according to the dictionary, <clears throat> is holding to traditional attitudes and values and cautious about change or innovation, typically in relation to politics or religion. Another uh, definition is sober or conventional, or if we're talking about an estimate, purposely low for the sake of caution. Um, <clears throat> so, and, and uh, another one in regards to medical treatment or surgery is intended to control rather than eliminate a condition with existing tissue preserved as far as possible. So I'm sure that that's really um, talking about surgery specifically, but that kind of relates to what we're talking about. So intended to control rather than eliminate a condition with existing tissue preserved as far as possible. And conversely, let's look at aggressive. So the definition of aggressive is characterized by or tending toward unprovoked offenses, attacks, invasions, or the like, militantly forward or menacing, making an all out effort to win or succeed, competitive, vigorously energetic, especially in the use of initiative and forcefulness, boldly assertive and forward or pushy, emphasizing maximum growth and capital gains over quality, security, and income. So conversely, let's look at aggressive. So the definition of aggressive is characterized by or tending toward unprovoked offenses, attacks, invasions, or the like, militantly forward or menacing, making an all-out effort to win or succeed, competitive, vigorously energetic, especially in the use of initiative and forcefulness, boldly assertive and forward or pushy, emphasizing maximum growth and capital gains over quality, security, and income, or in medicine or medical definitions are growing, growing or spreading rapidly, highly invasive, difficult or impossible to treat successfully. So clearly that's in regards to disease, like an aggressive brain lesion. Um, another medical definition is pertaining to risky surgery or treatment or to a medication that has grave side effects like aggressive chemotherapy. I've encountered doctors who have said things like, you know, can't you just go get that piece of calculus or are you really going to charge them for a deep cleaning? It's just one area. You know, and it's just, this is such an interesting thing to me. Um, I, I've also worked with some doctors or other providers, even other hygienists in some instances who have kind of downplayed or ignored the fact that there are six millimeter probing depths with true clinical attachment loss and bleeding on a patient based on the fact that there is no radiographic calculus. And we know that radiographic calculus is, um, it's an episode on its own. We are actually going to do a podcast episode about periodiagnosis and the role that calculus does and doesn't play in that. So that's a whole other discussion. Um, but we know just generally that the calculus is basically a local irritant. It's like, it can be compared to like an enamel pearl, a poor crown margin, um, but that the plaque biofilm and the endotoxins and mesh with the cementum are the active part of the infection causing attachment loss. And that's what we have to disrupt during scaling, right? So this line of thinking is, is comparable to me of like, hey, you know, can't you just go feel that occlusal decay in like 30 minutes? Are you still going to charge the patient? Are you still going to post for that service? You know, and, and all of these things, when we talk about like, oh, can't you just go do that? Can't you just, do you have to post for it? That what it reminds me of is a story that I know that a lot of us are familiar with. It's the story of Picasso's napkin. And this is the gist of it. So Picasso was sitting in a Paris cafe when an admirer went up to him and asked if he would do a quick sketch for him on a paper napkin. Picasso politely agreed and did a quick sketch and handed back the napkin, but not before asking for a rather large amount of money. And the admirer was horrified and said, how can you ask so much? It only took you a minute to draw this. No, Picasso replied, it took me 40 years. So clearly this is, you know, this is like our experience. So yes, you know, we can now go get that, the, the chunk of calculus. Yes, I can probably do that in, you know, a couple minutes. Um, because we've done it thousands of times and we've taken the time to hone our skill and we have the appropriate education and experience and practice, you know? So admittedly in early practice, I think this is a very common thing, you know, I, I made a lot of mistakes and I learned from them and a lot of them I learned the hard way, you know, and a lot of those mistakes involved under treatment planning. Um, I, I think that I undervalued my work as we often do as new practitioners. Um, I undervalued my experience and my education. Um, I even undervalued my opinion and compared myself to dentists and hygienists around me. Um, and I often didn't contribute my opinions based on the fact that I was, you know, thinking I was less than other practitioners and they believed some things strongly. Right. Um, so I would treatment plan, you know, something like a uh, full mouth debridement, you know, when there's attachment loss and active disease, you know, and, and use aura kicks. And basically the patient would just be uncomfortable. I'd watch, you know, some of the non-radiographic black calculus come out of the sulcus or the pocket with profuse bleeding. Um, and, and we know like after exper experiencing that over and over again, 
the patient, you know, wasn't treatment planned adequately. They had active disease and attachment loss. You know, when, when we're treatment planning or under treatment planning, it's really not fair to them. Um, and in these instances, you know, I realized I didn't allow enough time to treat them pro properly and comfortably. And I was basically doing one of two things. And we are doing one of two things when we treatment plan this way, we're either doing, we're giving them a free service and not educating them fully about what we're doing, right? So we're either doing the scaling, but calling it something else or we're just not doing it at all. You know, it, we may not have educated them about it. We may see that there's disease, but we're afraid to tell the patient. So, oh, I'm just gonna treat, I'm just gonna do a profi kind of thing. You know, and that's not fair to, to anyone. In these instances, you know, I used the wrong decodes, didn't tell them about the problem and all these things are, are not good for anyone. So let's consider something different for a second. Well, and I want to speak into that for just a second, because okay, not only when, when, honestly, when we're not doing the right thing in those cases, that's, that's really malpractice, mm -hmm. um, that, that can be a lawsuit waiting to happen. Um, you know, the patient comes to us for our professional expertise. Our patient doesn't know everything there is to know about periodontal disease and the host immune response and the comorbidities that go with that. I mean, that is why they're coming to us is to take really great care of them. And yes, there, there has kind of been this underlying thought of, well, you know, I just go to get my cleaning and that's maintaining my health, but there's a lot of things that the patient doesn't understand. And if we're not doing all the assessments and really educating the patient and giving them the options for the best treatment, then that is malpractice. And that's, that's, you know, honestly kind of stealing from the patient. I know if I went for a medical procedure and the doctor did all the assessments and didn't tell me everything that was going on and just said, well, you know, I'm a little concerned about some things, but let's, let's just go ahead and clean things up. I want you to do a little bit different at home. Um, and, and, you know, we'll see what things look like in six months then I kind of leave with the, the idea that this isn't that big of a deal. Like, oh, things were a little off. Okay, you know, you'll do your thing. And, you know, and I, I leave not knowing that I had an active infection that could, you know, put me at risk for, for systemic illness and issues. Like, I would be pretty frustrated by that. I would right. be really upset by that. So I, I think we have to really ground ourselves in what we are legally responsible to do um, and then also just from a, from an ethical standpoint, what we are responsible to do with educating our patient and, and really making them part of the process. I mean, we are working for them. We right. are doing what they come to us to do. And if we're not educating on all fronts, then we're really doing a disservice to everyone involved. Right. So I want to challenge everyone to consider something for a second. Okay. Let's just consider this together. So Anything we do in hygiene as prevention specialists is minimally invasive. So let's just soak that in for a second. I'm going to repeat it. Anything we do in hygiene as prevention specialists, which is what we are, is minimally invasive. So this includes scaling because guess what? The next steps and the other options will always be surgical for them, right? So if a person has early disease and scaling is indicated, that is the least invasive, the most quote unquote conservative option the patient has at that point in time. And it's the appropriate treatment for early disease because there are other options if the disease becomes more advanced are, are gonna be more expensive and more invasive, right? So not long ago, I overheard one of our hygienists and doctors talking and the hygienist said, I'm not sure if I was being aggressive by referring the patient to our periodontist. Uh, this was my line of thinking. Um, so the hygienist explained to, or I'm sorry, the dentist replied to her and said, um, yeah, I think it was a little aggressive. So I went over and I asked the hygienist to kind of explain to me what the patient's situation was, their health situation, what the clinical findings were, what the med history was. And the hygienist explained to me that the patient had class two furcations, localized areas of vertical bone loss, active disease, um, localized tooth mobility with a history of non-surgical perio treatment. Um, she explained that she thought that the best course of action would be to refer to a specialist to explore advanced treatment options prior to attempting more non-surgical therapy to, the, to arrest the disease. Um, she was concerned that non-surgical intervention would not sufficiently help the patient to achieve and maintain her health, given the clinical indicators and the treatment history. So I said, so the patient had disease and you referred the patient to have what you thought would be the most appropriate treatment. I told her that I was missing the aggressive part. And it's true. And it's true. You know, like if I've told my hygienist over and over again, if you 
see conditions that you feel you cannot adequately arrest and maintain in your chair, there is no shame in referring to a specialist because guess what? The best case scenario is the specialist looks and says, no, you can continue with periodontal maintenance. There's nothing indicated at this time. That's the best, the best case scenario, but there's a window of time. We know where a patient can undergo special specialist therapy, specialty treatment, basically. And once they're past that window, there's really no other options. You know, once a, once a patient's disease is advanced enough that they have class three mobility or they have class three or four forcations, like their treatment options become slimmer and slimmer. So earliest intervention possible is usually the least invasive because let's think of the alternatives, you know, let's say this person didn't refer to the periodontist and the periodontist did rec would have recommended treatment and could have kind of gotten this to arrest in a more sustainable fashion than by just doing non-surgical therapy. Um, the alternative is, okay, she didn't refer to the specialist, the disease advanced to the point where by the time she referred, teeth were being lost and we're now offering replacement options like implants. Okay, what was the least aggressive option? Was it in that case to refer sooner or was it to wait until the disease progressed past where we could do anything about it? And now we're talking extractions and implants, you know? Right. And in that case, you, you said she had already, she shared that that patient had already undergone non-surgical peri periotherapy right. and was, and her disease was still present and progressive. So right. yeah, that makes total sense to me why you wouldn't take the next step. Um, you said a phrase a few minutes ago that I think we definitely have a role in, and that this, this should be our title instead of hygienists. I, I would prefer that we were called prevention specialists. Mm -hmm. We cannot call ourselves that if we're not in prevention mode right. and watching active inflammation, infection, bleeding is not prevention. You know, prevention is saying to that patient, Hey, yep. I've been seeing you for years and things have looked really good, but today they don't right. let's talk about why let's talk about what's changed. Um, you know, let's, let's talk about the host response. Cause that's typically why things have changed. Um, you know, let's really get into this because my goal for you is that we keep you healthy for a lifetime. And if I see a peak here where things aren't looking healthy, I want to treat that area so that we truly are preventing. I've had many conversations with patients that I have seen for a long period of time as perio maintenance patients. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, I feel like I'll see, I'll see bleeding, I'll see inflammation and we'll talk about that and we'll treat that. And then they come back and, you know, it's still there. And I've said to patients, look, I have you on a perio maintenance routine because I want to do the main part of that word, which is maintenance. Mm -hmm. I am not maintaining health for you. This is not okay with me. I, you know, I don't want you to keep coming and paying me and seeing me thinking all is good. This bleeding, this inflammation is not healthy. It's not healthy for you overall. So it's time to take the next step. And whether that's us integrating perio protect trays, whether that's sending out to the specialist to look at doing some LANAP, whatever that is, I'm all for it because I can't call myself a prevention specialist or even that I'm doing periodontal maintenance therapy if I'm not maintaining health. And I think it's important to patients that we're vulnerable and real with them like that, you know, to say, I'm doing the best I can, you're doing the best you can. Unfortunately, it's still not enough. There's all these variables we can't control. Let's get someone else involved. Let's get the periodontist involved. Let's get perioprotect involved, whatever that looks like to really maintain health. It's okay to say that. And I know we feel like a failure to say, well, I tried, I did everything I could and it's still not enough. We're not a failure if as we would be a failure if we were ignoring it and just continuing to do the same thing over and over. Right. But if, if we're really addressing that and educating the patient and seeking help, we're not a failure. That that's right. the win. Exactly. And that's, and that's a part of why we need specialties in healthcare yes. in general, you know, because yes. a, a general dentist, you know, refers out to an oral, oral surgeon for something, you know, it doesn't mean that they're failing at their job. It means that each of us specializes in something different. And now we're at the point where I need to refer you to this person who specializes in the, in the next phase of your treatment. Thanks for investing your time and energy into listening to Bulletproof Hygiene. Remember to click subscribe to join our community of dental professionals that embrace growth and collaboration to better yourself, your patients, and our profession. For more information on our 2021 Live Summit, Bulletproof Hygiene Book, and training opportunities, download the Mighty Networks app and search Bulletproof Hygiene. One of the things too, that kind of like stops us up sometimes is that unfortunately, I think some, 
many of us may be still treatment planning according to what insurance dictates. You know, we let insurance run the show a lot. And like you say all the time, you know, we need to put it in the uh, trunk and not the driver's seat. You know, we need to put on our the hat of our professional degree and our education. Um, because, and we've got to remember at the end of the day, you know, insurance companies are businesses. And at the end of the day, they have to earn a profit in order to stay open, which means that they have to say no at some point in order for them to be successful as a business, right? So what they say no to, or the what they dictate they will and won't cover doesn't have very much to do with what the best treatment indications are for the patient. It has to do with them running a business, you know, and it's not that insurance companies are bad or they're all unethical or anything. That's not what I'm saying. It's just, we have to remember that we are the clinicians at the end of the day, we are seeing the patient firsthand. We We have to make the clinical judgment calls according to what we know based on evidence decision making and peer reviewed research and, you know, all the stuff that we know with our professional degree and not based on insurance limitations. Right. And, you know, when you have those patients that are really insurance driven, you know, again, it's just that, that, that communication of, you know, Mr. Jones, I don't want to let insurance dictate your care because insurance sets these same limitations for all of their, their, patrons, you know, it's, it's across the board. This isn't just specifically for you. It's for everyone across the board. What your insurance company does not know are all of the issues that we're facing here, whether it's, you know, you're diabetic and you're taking a lot of medications and you have dry mouth and, you know, you're a smoker, you know, like whatever their issues are, insurance doesn't take any of that into account. So they're not really looking at that patient to say, Hey, this is really what's best for you. And we're going to take care of that. You know, we have to help our patients understand that insurance is more of a benefit. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, dental insurance, we all know this looks so much different than our medical insurance, you know, and patients don't always understand that. So it's sometimes just educating them on that of, you know, yes, I understand that you're frustrated that insurance isn't going to cover this as much as you would like, but this is the reality of your condition. This is why we're seeing this. And this is why I'm recommending what I'm recommending now let's figure out how to make it work for you, regardless of what insurance covers. So that's when, you know, you start talking more about, you know, some financial options and, and how to kind of break that down for them. But I don't think that insurance should be, should make us change our treatment planning mentally towards each patient. Not, no, not at all. That's, that's where we figure out how to make it work for them. Right. And, you know, I like to tell patients that payment from a dental insurance company is like a surprise bonus you know, look at it as like, oh, wow, like what a, what a plus, what a surprise that they helped cover the service or, you know, we're in network with a lot of insurance companies. So even if it's not covered, quote unquote, we honor the reduced fee, you know, it's not the UCR fee, it's their insurance rate, you know, that they're getting. So we talk about that as well. Um, But I want to talk about another example of, you know, how people use the words conservative and aggressive. So this is an extreme example. It's similar to some of the things that I think that many of us have seen and heard um, each other do in dentistry, but I think it's very uh, relevant. So I've heard, you know, some dentists say, you know, I'm conservative, so I'm in a treatment plan, for instance, basically a whole tooth composite instead of full coverage for this tooth, like a full coverage, more permanent solution, meaning porcelain or crown inlay onlay, you know? So let's think about what that might mean for the patient. So Initially, you know, the patient may be happy with that thinking, oh, conservative treatment plan because I get to spend less. Um, And initially it may seem like a a great solution, but if the doctor or if we, you know, talking about our period treatment plans didn't take the time to completely inform them, they will, they will think that the quality of that treatment option is equivalent to full coverage or more long-term solution. When the truth is maybe we just offered them the short-term subpar options without giving them the best long-term treatment options first. And we may not have relayed the risk associated with this plan, such as a higher risk for fracture and tooth loss. So long-term, you know, trying to be conservative, meaning the, the lowest cost, I think some of us think equivalently to that sometimes, like, oh, I'm being conservative because this is what's going to cost the patient the least. And oftentimes it's just costing them the least initially, right. but costing them the most on the back end. If that tooth fractures, you know, because it's, it's not it maybe should have had full coverage. And I'm by no means saying, you know, I'm diagnosing and I'm the dentist because I'm not making those clinical judgment calls, you know, but, you know, in some instances, there are times when like the dentist has been like, oh, maybe I should have 
treatment plan that differently. And I know that we definitely look at our plans the same way. Like, wow, that wasn't the best long-term solution. Now the patient needs a crown and they just paid for this and, or the patient's losing the tooth and now they need an implant and a crown or, you know, something just because it wasn't initially what maybe the best option would have been, you know, and we were trying to be conservative and make the patient happy and not rock the boat and not upset them, but it led to a bigger and more extensive treatment plan in the long run. And that's not what was best for anyone. Right. And I think what you're saying here is, is really important. And I think a really important part of educating and treatment planning is not just saying, Hey, this is what we're seeing. And this is what we recommend, but also including, and this is what happens if we don't do anything or we don't go this route Mm -hmm. because the patient doesn't always know that. And so, yeah, say you're seeing a patient who's got a fracture, um, on a molar, say that, say that it's an, a molar that has an existing older amalgam. You're starting to see, you know, that the margins are starting to separate and you've got like a distal fracture there. You know, we always take a photo and show that patient what's going on. Um, you know, and we'll have the conversation of, you know, we could either replace this with a composite filling, which is a plastic filling. It's not as strong as we'd like it to be on these back molars. We put a lot of pounds of pressure where we're chewing. So one option would be to remove that amalgam, obviously, you know, open up where this crack is and put a composite in there. Um, The other option would be to use either an inlay or an onlay, which is a porcelain restoration, which adds a whole lot of strength back to the tooth and really supports that tooth. I mean, obviously if we have a fracture now, we know that tooth is taking a lot of impact as you're chewing. So we want to really set you up for long-term success. What we know about composites is average lifespan on those is about seven to 10 years versus if we were to use a porcelain restoration, we're looking at 20 plus years. So yes, there is a cost difference into your investment into restoring this tooth, but I want you to know all those options so that we can really treat according to your goals and what your long-term, you know, wishes are in this case. Um, Well, what you're talking about though, is a situation where both those options are appropriate, right? Both of those are appropriate options still at that point. Like I'm talking about maybe when it's not the most appropriate option, but we're afraid to tell the patient what the, you you know what I mean? Like, like if we, we, we know that there's a high risk of something going wrong quickly soon, If we do this less expensive option. Yeah, I know. I totally agree in regards to giving patients like the best treatment option, explaining why this is better, but you still have the option of doing this alternative treatment plan, like like a resin versus an an onlay or an inlay. Yeah, totally agree. Um, I mean, I think that we shouldn't, I just think no one should be treatment planning less than the disease status dictates. Right, right. for instance, in, in the hygiene realm, if we said, I'm going to be conservative and just do a profi, let's look at what this means for the patient. So initially, just like the restorative example, you know, this is going to be a lower cost out of pocket. If the patient is left uninformed, they might initially be happy about this, but let's take a minute and really think it through. So because we identified early periodontal disease and chose not to treat it, citing you know, being conservative as our reason, the patient may then suffer systemic comorbidities. They might lose more gum and bone support, eventually lose teeth in later stages of the disease versus, you know, treating early disease via non-surgical options. So let's ask, you know, again, let's look at this. Was this conservative? Doing a prophy in the presence of disease means that the disease will continue to progress and that in a few years, they'll have more attachment loss. They may need scaling anyway, or at that point, they may need to be referred to a specialist they may lose teeth. They may need extractions and implants. Now we're looking at thousands of dollars and essentially, you know, prosthetics in some cases to replace missing teeth, which will never be as good as what God gave them, which is their initial, their original teeth. Right. Right. So that would be any of these examples would be like an oncologist saying, you know, you only have stage one cancer, so it's, it's not a big deal. I think we should just watch it for right now. Um, I don't want it. I don't, I really don't want to intervene at this point because you'll just have to, you'll have to pay out of pocket. So as ridiculous as that sounds, that's what we're doing when we don't treat early period disease, in my opinion. So the difference is that public perception surrounding cancer is cancer bad, cancer free, good. You know, the, the public is very educated. They know what cancer is, you know, but, and even though I think that there is a lot less education in regards to period disease and people don't view period disease readily as, as life-threatening or an initial uh, a risk to them, we are the ones who have the power to change that perception, the, the perception of how people see their perio health. So 
it takes years of consistent united professional messages being communicated to the public. And you've probably noticed this too. I've noticed in recent years, like even a change in the last five years, even like toothpaste commercials are coming, coming up with and talking about gum health and having a good checkup with your hygienist. And I find that patients are coming in to the dental office now with some knowledge of how perio health impacts their heart health and their diabetes. And I'm starting to see kind of the trickle effect of general medicine, including dental and hygiene, dental and, and perio health right. as in part of their overall treatment planning and their, their thoughts prior to surgery and that sort of thing. They're referring people to dentists to make sure that these things are covered before starting things like cancer treatments or, you know, a heart surgery, you know? So I think that, yeah. It's a really cool shift that's happening, but if we want to get to the point where the public perception is perio bad, perio free, or perio arrested right. good, then we've got to keep staying consistent and consistently have this like united front of like, listen, I understand you're not experiencing pain, but you have infection in your mouth and we've got to treat the infection. Even if initially the patient isn't, isn't thrilled about it, or they do owe something out of pocket, you know? Right. And so many patients don't know. I literally just saw a new patient this week who is type two diabetic. He's on five different medications. He is experiencing dry mouth. He's lost many teeth already. And unfortunately we are going to help him lose a few more mm -hmm. um, just because the extent of infection that's there, but no one had ever talked to him about the correlation between diabetes and periodontal disease. And it floored me. Right. Um, and he, he was, really appreciative of sharing that information. But that's another thing we can do as hygienists is we've got to keep talking about it with our patients. And, you know, Google is a great thing. And I encourage my patients when we start talking about this and they, they kind of are like, Oh, really? I didn't know that. I encourage them, please. I want you to, you know, just Google diabetes and periodontal disease and start reading. There's so much out there of just really encouraging our patients to research for themselves, because once they really know and understand and can, can connect it, um, that's when they're going to start owning it and wanting to do something about it. Yeah. I love, I love that you tell your patients to research it because then yes. they're part of discovering yes. their problem and potentially discovering some of the treatment options or solutions, because when they're Googling that they're probably finding like, Oh, scaling and root planing or right. oh, perio surgery, you know, they're probably coming across those things too. So they see that this is a normal way to treat this, this disease. Right. You know? right. And I have been practicing long enough and have learned enough about the oral systemic connection that, I mean, I just get the heebie-jeebies. I mean, when you said earlier, you said, you know, the, the, the options that we have in hygiene are the non-invasive options. Mm -hmm. I agree with you to some extent, and then I disagree to some extent because I know that when I'm performing scaling and root planing, I am creating a heck of a lot of bacteremia. And so when I see those patients that are really high risk, you know, those type two diabetics whose A1C is 8.8, .8, which is what his was, I don't want to get in there and start scaling and root planing because I feel like at that point, I'm doing a disservice to him of, I, of introducing and stirring all that up into the bloodstream at once. And that's when I'll, I'll, you know, deviate my treatment plan to use the perioprotect trays as initial therapy, because I want to knock down that biofilm before I even get in there and start disrupting. So I think, you know, we have to have such a huge handle on the oral systemic connection and on what we're doing directly impacting that from our chair. And, you know, and that should, that same thing should roll into the, you know, what we call bloody prophies of doing a prophy in the, in the site of, of infection. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's happened to all of us where we've done our period charting and things look pretty good. I mean, you know, generalized one to threes, maybe some localized fours, not even a whole lot of bleeding on probing, but then you get in there and you start doing your scaling and there's a lot of bleeding mm -hmm. and you like in your head are like, oh gosh, oh gosh, oh gosh. Now what do I do? Because this isn't a, a good situation. And that's where you just take a breath and you grab your hand mirror and you hand it to the patient and let them look with you and say, Hey, look, I've just, I've just worked on three teeth here. And as you could tell, it wasn't really uncomfortable to you, but do you see all this bleeding? Mm -hmm. This is not okay. We got to stop and have a conversation. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes we downplay mild disease or localized disease because the patient's not concerned about it. Um, and it is localized and mild. And, and when we've been in the game for a long time, I feel like we almost compare everything to the worst we've ever seen too. Right. 
Right. We have a tendency to be like, oh, well, you know, it's so mild. Like there's this localized area, uh, this one five millimeter pocket with bleeding on probing and true clinical attachment loss. I think that, you know, I'll just call it a prophy this time. Like, because I've seen this person with like 13 millimeter pockets in class three right. uh, locations and class three mobility, and they lost all their teeth. And that was the most advanced, but we have to remember this localized early disease will progress to that at some right. point if we don't intervene and we get to choose to look at the evidence and offer intervention at that point and maintain that that level of attachment loss to some extent. You know? Right. And we also, I think we also get to dictate the patient's perception of it. Yeah. Right. right? Because how many times do we hear, catch ourselves saying, well, there's a little bleeding or there's a little redness. There's just some, it's just localized. There's just some localized inflammation. Mm -hmm. So that communicates to the patient like, oh, it's not a big problem. It's yeah. just a little problem. We'll get it taken care of. So I think that's something we have to evaluate too, is how we're communicating it with them. Um, and, and I've had many times patients will ask me, you know, like, is this the worst you've ever seen? Like, how bad is this? Mm -hmm. What, you know, how, what does this look like to you? What do you think? And, you know, you have to kind of on the seesaw of freaking them out versus, you know, making them feel comfortable. I think we have to be direct and honest with, you know, no, it's not the worst I've ever seen, but I am concerned about it. And it is something I really want to make sure that we're getting under control because I know what it can put you at risk for. Right. So we're going to get it taken care of. Let's make sure we understand the, ste the steps that we need to take and that we're partnering in this together so that we can really maintain health, obtain and maintain health. Yeah, absolutely. Can you, um, do you, I, I want to hear kind of about your experience, if you don't mind, can you think of anything in regards to uh, an experience like that you've had clinically where someone has said, or you said like, oh, I'm going to be conservative um, or that person's aggressive or something like real world that has happened that you can, I mean, like yeah, I've said to patients and recently I've said to patients, um, you know, this is kind of the most, uh, most conservative approach we can take. Mm -hmm. um, I've said that a lot for new patients where I kind of haven't seen their history. You know, this is the first time I'm seeing them. So I don't really know, yeah. um, you know, what, what they've looked like over time. And so, you know, what I'll say is, Hey, this is kind of the most conservative route we can take over doing something surgical or more invasive in advance. Um, you know, let's start here, but I want to keep a very close eye on it. You know, I want to see you back in six weeks to make sure that we've really arrested this and it's under control. Right. Um, and then, you know, we'll kind of determine your frequency based off of that information. But yeah, yeah. So, so I think that that is an actually, that's a reasonable way and the right way to use the word conservative because it's comparatively and, it, and you know, it is conservative compared to surgical intervention. I right. mean, have you heard or seen like someone use these words inappropriately, like maybe mislabel something as conservative or aggressive? Have you like experienced this in your practice? Well, I'm, I'm just curious. I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Over, over the years, there are times where we'll say, you know, the doctor will say, I want to watch this. And in my brain, I kind of think watch it do what? Cause we know, we know what the next steps are. Watch it grow. Right. Right. And I've had, I've had patients that have come in again, new patients that have said, yeah, you know, that my doctors talked to me about that for years. We've just kind of been watching it. And, you know, I have said, well, you've kind of watched it to the point where now we know there's leakage happening around this and there's acids and sugars and bacteria getting around this. And this is setting you up for failure. You know, I'm not sure that watching it is the way to go at this point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, of course, throughout my years, you know, I've, I've seen us, you know, and I think, again, I think it's a fear-based of not wanting the patient to have a bad reaction or not wanting to, you know, come back to see us because, you know, we, we were too aggressive. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I think for sure, for sure. I think that's a lot of people's go-to. Yeah. So, so I think that the main takeaways for this episode might be, um, you know, when we watch something or we don't offer um, resolution or solutions for early disease processes, what that's always going to equal is the disease will progress and advance without early intervention. It will become moderate or advanced and the treatment plan will increase in cost in size and how, and in how invasive it is, you know? So I think that it's important for us to not mislabel, you know, the least invasive early treatment of early disease as aggressive because there's just mild disease. I think that's, to me, that's the most common misconception. Like people have said, oh, I think it's so aggressive that you treatment plan scaling on that patient. I'm like, really explain that to me. 
right. you know, and then I, I, I walk them through my process of how I treatment plan and how I came to this conclusion, including the patient's medical history and their actual clinical health status. And the fact that they have attachment loss, the fact they have bleeding on probing, the fact that they are placky and their tissue is inflamed. Maybe their diabetes is under control, you know? So I'm like, please explain to me what you mean by that, you know? And it's like, a lot of times I think it's just that provider maybe isn't in the room with you. They, they haven't had all the information. Right. So an important thing is like, get all the information before right. you judge too, because right. I think that's a big problem is like, we look, we just glance at something sometimes and we're like, oh, what's that provider doing? That's aggressive. Or, oh, I think they undertreated or overtreated that patient. Maybe let's not jump to conclusions so fast and maybe let's get all the information first. That's a big thing. Right. And then, and then just remember, you know, if we don't intervene early, we'll have to intervene later. And it'll be most likely after the patient has experienced pain or swelling or systemic comorbidities or, you know, the, the complicated treatment plan, they need extractions now, you know, so just remember that is more aggressive and it's appropriate for more aggressive or latent or, or later stages of disease. Right. So there's right. a place for that sort of treatment too. We just don't want it. We don't want our patients to have to undergo that, undergo any of that advanced treatment or surgical intervention. If we right. can do it non-surgically. Right. Yeah. And, and for any of our kind of newer hygiene listeners, um, I had kind of an eye opening experience. We had a, a new hygienist that was kind of shadowing us, um, as she was waiting to get her license because COVID delayed everything. And so she was spending a lot of time with us. And, um, once she got her licensure, she was still hanging out with us and she kind of, you know, started to see some patients. And, um, I realized that, and I guess I don't remember this back from, you know, when the dinosaurs roamed the earth and I was getting my hygiene degree, but I kind of forgot that in hygiene school, you don't learn a whole lot about treatment planning. I mean, yeah. obviously you learn a whole lot about perio and what that looks like and when to treat and, and how to treat, but you don't learn a whole lot about treatment planning. So I think it's very normal at the beginning of your hygiene career to not necessarily be treatment planning appropriately because no one really instructed you on that aspect. Right. So if, if you find yourself in that boat, you know, um, if there's a, a hygienist that's been practicing a while, kind of, you know, reaching out and saying, hey, can you kind of mentor me through this? Um, you know, that's one of the biggest reasons Brittany and I are here. If, 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 if you know, I'm describing you right now, come join us on our Mighty Networks app. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just download the app and then find us on Bulletproof Hygiene and, you know, give us, you know, give us a shout and say, hey, help me figure this out. Because that's something that's super, super important for your long-term success and fulfillment as a hygienist. And I think, you know, we talked about insurance. It's not my most favorite thing um, because it's just, I, I don't understand it, but um, I don't think it's the best benefit to our patients the way they've got that set up. But I will say, I think there have been some positive changes in the last few years of them instituting the 4346 code mm -hmm. now to address gingivitis. Um, you know, the 4341 um, the 4342 for localized areas, I think, you know, they now have the codes for perio protect trays. Mm -hmm. Um, so I do think that, you know, there, there's a shift happening there, which I like. Um, one thing I do feel like I've seen a lot of is hygienists using the 4346, um, when there's actually bone loss and perio going on. So that's one thing I just want to say, because I feel like it's again, and I think it's like that fear-based thing of like, Ooh, now the 4346 isn't as expensive and insurance is more, more apt to cover that. So we'll just start there and see what that gets us. But if you're, you got to be pulling up your bite wings mm -hmm. to see if there's bone loss, because if there's bone loss, you cannot use that 4346. It's, well, it's, I want to speak to that actually. Too, okay. I think that a lot of times what people and providers do is they glance at the bite wings and they say, Oh, there's you know, just very slight bone loss, but keep in mind, like a bite wing and x-ray is a two-dimensional image of a three-dimensional object. Right. It is only showing you the highest level of that alveolar crest. You are not seeing the lowest right. level on either the buccal or the lingual, right. not seeing the direct buccal, you're not seeing the direct lingual. So right. it's putting all of the pieces together. So yep. does the patient have recession? Right. Does the patient have probing? Is it just lingual? Is it just mesiolingual, but not mesiobuccal? Then you're not going to see that on an x-ray. So you right. can't make a judgment call just based on bite wings. Right. It's always like, we've got to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And Charissa and I, I know that you and I discussed this, like we're going to make, we're going to have an entire episode on how to treatment plan appropriately and how to come up with, with treatment plans for hygiene and, you know, what the, what the best options are and like some, yep. uh, some easy go-tos that we can, you know, recommend in addition to the 
the episode that we're going to do on radiographic calculus and how to assess periodontal disease, because I think that both of those things we can talk forever on and right. are, are their right. own, you know, podcasts. But I think it's just so important. Like, man, those bite wings, they're a helpful tool, but they're just one tool in our tool belt. And we've got to remember, like, why do we periochart if we have bite wings? Because periochart is circumferential. We get six readings around each tooth that tell us, is there any attachment loss on a bite wing? You can only see two, two points, right. you know, around the entire tooth. So don't let that limit your treatment planning or decision-making either. And, right. and the bite wings, I know that insurance companies will look at the bite wings and say, Oh, there's no, there's no bone loss here. Okay. Well, did you look at the perio chart? Because there clearly is bone loss here, you know? So right. we've got to, we've got to put on our professional degrees and our education and remember that that's not the only factor and don't let it be a limiting factor. Right. Right. Yep. <laughs> so I think, you know, let's put aside our biases. Let's put aside our feelings and our fears and instead put on our professional degrees, set up everyone for success Remembering that the most conservative treatment is the least invasive treatment for the level of disease present in the patient's mouth at that time. Yeah. So this doesn't mean seeing early disease and ignoring it. It means seeing early disease and intervening so, so that it doesn't end up progressing. Right. We all have the power to do that. So let's, con yeah. let's continue to change the paradigm. Let's shift the paradigm of hygiene and let's become, let's step into that, the shoes and that big role of being prevention specialists and move forward from here. Agreed. I'm, I'm accepting the challenge. I'm down. Perfect. Any finishing thoughts, Sharissa? No, I mean, not outside of just, I want everyone to get the heebie-jeebies when they see the bleeding and know that <laughs> what we do makes, makes a big difference. And we, we gotta, we gotta just treat what's going on. Yep. Love it. Thank you for all the wisdom that you bring from the dinosaur era <laughs> in your words, not mine. And I want to thank all of our listeners for taking the time. A lot of you have reached out, which has been awesome. Um, just taking the time to invest in yourself um, and what you're doing for your practice and your patients. And um, just for following along with Brittany and I, we really, really like that interaction. Um, we want to know what you want to know and what's important to you and what's working for you. So please, if you haven't joined us on our Mighty Network um, and start coming to chat with us, and even more so, we would love to see you in person because we have our Bulletproof Summit that is happening July 9th and 10th. Um, out in Austin, Texas, and we are going to get to like be face to face and talk to each other and answer all the questions and, and be able to really, really connect. So if you haven't signed up for that already, you can visit us at bulletproofsummit.com and check out all the details there. Yep. We hope to see you guys. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast. We hope you've had as much fun as we have. Don't forget to click subscribe for a lot more where this came from. We appreciate your support and promise to keep the hygiene gems coming. Keep track of the upcoming Bulletproof Hygiene events by visiting bulletproofhygiene.com or download the Mighty Networks app and search Bulletproof Hygiene to stay connected. We want to hear from you.